Alzheimer's disease is a crippling illness that affects so many of our patients. Where is the state of the art in terms of treatment of this disease and what future prospects lie ahead? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. Samuel Gandhi, professor and director of the Farber Institute for Neurosciences at Thomas Jefferson University and the chair of the Medical and Scientific Advisory Council of the Alzheimer's Association. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Gandhi. Thank you for having me. In terms of current treatments for Alzheimer's, I think of the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. Can you tell us a little bit about them and and what their utility is? Sure. There are currently four medicines that are approved for therapy for Alzheimer's disease. Three of those fall into that category of, of cholinesterase inhibitors. And they act by helping the brain compensate at the beginning of the illness for the deficiency in a chemical, a transmitter called acetylcholine that nerve cells use to talk to one another. For reasons that we don't understand, the nerve cells that create acetylcholine, this transmitter, are especially vulnerable to the early stages of Alzheimer's and they go on to die. And therein lies the reason that the medicines wear off. Uh, The medicines block or help to slow the breakdown of the transmitter, but they don't actually act directly on the receptors, or nor can they stimulate creation of the transmitter. So once those nerve cells that are making the, the substance die, the medicines wear off. And so we know then that though the medicine seems to help a bit at the beginning of the of the illness, uh, and for a little while, they do wear off. And it's not clear that they have a major impact on the rapidity of the progression of the disease. So we're not really reversing. We're kind of delaying the process. And, and then once these start wearing off, the decline tends to be at, the, at the, about the same rate. There is a bit of a, uh, an acceleration eventually uh, in, in most people. But things often start out rather slow, but at, at some point there is an acceleration of the, of the decline in many cases, and the, the cholinesterase inhibitors don't really help stave that off. They help on the sort of flatter part of the curve of the, of the progression of the illness. They sort of, one example I use is they sort of turn the clock back six months, but the clock then keeps ticking. So I imagine it's important to start these as early as possible? They have been approved for all phases of the illness, and there does seem to be some benefit even at the late stages. That's only recently been studied, but certainly the classical use is for them at the at the beginning of the disease to try and, you know, again, since since they only work while those nerve cells are alive, the best chance of getting a response is why is in the early stages of the disease while those cells are still making the acetylcholine. And and then for me as an internist, it's often hard to feel confident in in making the diagnosis. I I want to start these drugs early. Is that a challenge for for a lot of people uh, coming up with a firm diagnosis, this is Alzheimer's? Well, certainly in diagnostic centers, there tends to be a fair degree of certainty. In specialized Alzheimer's centers, the diagnostic accuracy is about 90%. But again, that's not a generalist population. That's an Alzheimer's center population where where we have those numbers. Out of all of the dementic illnesses, all all the causes of dementia, about two-thirds is Alzheimer's. So if you guess Alzheimer's, you're almost certainly going to be right two-thirds of the time. 
being absolutely confident out of a specialty center is a challenge, and that's something that the radiologists and the molecular biologists are trying to, to attack by developing either brain scans that will help generalists make the diagnosis or blood or spinal fluid tests. Usually blood tests are the, are the most convenient. We don't have those at the moment. So there are two choices, either to begin the drug you know, yourself as an internist or to refer. The good news is that the medicines are really pretty well tolerated and pretty safe so that you don't you know, really have to feel that reluctant about, about using them, at least in terms of side effects or, or causing damage. You can get some problems with drooling and GI distress, but it's usually not very severe. That one reason, one thing to think about, though, is that as new medicines are coming along to be tested in clinical trials, some are excluding patients who have already been or are currently on acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. We're actually in the midst now of testing a new medicine called Demobon, which looks very promising, but the original trial, which was done in Russia, the drug treatment group was compared to people who had never taken any drugs at all. The whole, the whole population was drug naive. And so there, the replication trial, before the, the medicine can be approved by the FDA, there has been so far a tendency, even in the states with the replication trial, to exclude people who are on cholinesterase inhibitors. So not a lot of downside to starting these, but with that caveat that perhaps if you're looking to get someone enrolled in one of the trials, that may disqualify them. That's exactly right. And so I imagine we do our typical blood work and some type of brain imaging to rule out the so-called reversible causes, and then it wouldn't be all that bad just empirically to start on an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. That's what's typically done by family physicians and, and internists throughout the country. There's usually an MRI these days to exclude you know, something that might be treatable like a Say hydrocephalus, normal pressure hydrocephalus is one of the things can, that can mimic Alzheimer's disease. And the blood tests to exclude some metabolic cause, thyroid dysfunction, other endocrine abnormalities can mimic Alzheimer's. And chronic cerebral vascular disease, I mean, rare illnesses can mimic Alzheimer's and would then dictate a different therapy. But if you, if you can't find anything medically wrong, the most likely cause is Alzheimer's. Out of that remaining third, so two-thirds is Alzheimer's, out of the remaining third, about half is a, a, a somewhat different disease called frontotemporal dementia. And we've begun to, to recognize this more and more. It's not a rare cause of dementia, and there are estimates sort of early days and getting good numbers, but there are estimates that in the younger onset population of dementia, that frontotemporal dementia before age 65 may be just as common as Alzheimer's. Dr. Gandhi, I imagine Namenda is that fourth approved drug. Where does that fit in? Should it be started first to mitigate the GI side effects of the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors? How do you feel about Namenda? Namenda is often started early. It's really most intended for moderate stage disease. The mechanism is to block the type, the receptors that are involved in the phenomenon called excitotoxicity. If glutamate receptors are stimulated too much, they can actually cause nerve cells to die. And the MENDA interferes with that. And that the tendency for a nerve cell to die in the presence of, of glutamate 
if the nerve cells are sensitized, if there are the characteristic amyloid plaques of Alzheimer's around the brain. So if the nerve cell in the plaque or with plaques around it is more sensitive to glutamate toxicity. That's how we, we think we're doing with Namenda. And using these medications either together or independently, are we talking about clinically important benefits or just benefits on certain statistical tests? It's fairly controversial. I think that there clearly are individuals who have dramatic responses. Not, say, moderately dramatic responses. I mean, obviously, where the entire family says things are different and, and even, you know, it, and there's a clear response. In many cases, there's not much of a noticeable response, maybe on a neuropsychological test, but really not much in a way of clinically important. The problem is that there's no way to predict whether a person will respond or won't. And once the drugs are started, the family and or the physician tend to be reluctant to withdraw them, thinking that they might be doing something, and if we stop them, things will get worse. So it's not a very satisfactory situation, as you can, as you can, as you, as you, as you know from your practice. But the real driving the the use of the drugs is the fact that sometimes, unpredictably, there are fairly remarkable responses, and those are the kind, obviously, that, that we want. But they're probably not the majority of people who get the, get the drugs. Now, sometimes when I'll send a patient for a specialty consultation for this, they'll come back on certain vitamins or natural things, folic acid derivatives, alpha-lipoic acid. Is there data to support the use of these products? There's a lot of interest in the role of diet and lifestyle in the risk for Alzheimer's. And there are epidemiological links to you know, what's called the Mediterranean diet that's rich in fish oil and, and vegetables. And there's this connection with, with red wine, and maybe that also seems to might delay the onset. The problem is that in every case, well, I guess with the exception of vitamin E, which has been tested and, and failed, these are epidemiological studies, and they haven't been subjected to randomized clinical trials. So we don't know for sure whether we're looking at that, whether these epi studies are giving us reliable information or not. We've had epi, epi data on hormone replacement therapy that misled us and epi therapy, epi data on statins that seem to have misled us. Mm-hmm. Most of these things tend to be you know, vitamins, alpha lipoic acid, um, omega fatty acids. They're things that are they are, certainly aren't bad for you and may be good for you. So we tend, to, since they're not prescription medicines, to you know, perhaps not focus on them as much as we might on a prescription medicine, but we really don't have the data to say which of those you should take and how much you should take. It's, it's really sort of it's a little voodoo-ish. But again, very little downside, I, I suppose, to trying these. The downsides come if, you're, if this is a person that you think might go to a clinical trial. I mean, for example, there's a medicine that's being tested now that involves the inflammatory response and breaking down amyloid. And people who are taking non-steroidals have to come off for at least three months before they can start that trial. And given the fact that non-steroidals don't, can't show a dramatic benefit, there's not a compelling reason to start them, if, especially if someone is going for a clinical trial. So those are the only downsides is that sometimes people you know, begin things that you think you know, will be good for you anyway, even if they don't help prevent Alzheimer's, and they might complicate their ability to get into a, a clinical trial. If there's someone who think is definitely not going to get into a clinical trial, there's no, you know, usually no harm in it, but again, there's no 
compelling evidence to it for it either. And if you have people who are taking 12 different pills a day and 10 of them are useless, it sort of puts a strain on the, the caregiver as well to, to try and get things right. Well, I want to thank Dr. Samuel Gandhi, professor and director of the Farber Institute for Neurosciences at Thomas Jefferson University and chair of the Medical and Scientific Advisory Council of the Alzheimer's Association for kind of going through with us the state of the art for pharmacologic treatment for Alzheimer's disease. This has been the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you very much for listening.